Good morning. Let's gather back to our seats. It's good to see everyone. I'm Pastor Ron. For those that don't know me, one of the pastors here. I love to see good fellowship and good coming together. We had a, a beautiful morning yesterday. I'd like to congratulate um, Jeff Glendinning and Andrea Serpis, who were married yesterday morning, and just a little family ceremony um, on the beach. And it was just wonderful and refreshing. And think about that as we come to our topic today about being refreshed and recharged. They aren't here today, as you would expect, um, but um, they wanted me to announce it and let you know. So next week, be sure to congratulate them. And um, I want to start with a, a different story from Acts. We're in Acts chapter 18, and we will get there, I promise, and we'll get there before 11. Um, but I want to go back to a story that we talked about when we talked about the names of God. And one of the names of God we talked about was El Roy, or the God who sees. And in, in Genesis 16, we have an interesting story because we have Abraham and Sarai who were, who were promised a child. And at this point, he's 86, she's around 77, which is too old to have children. And so they are struggling with, okay, what has God done? Has God been faithful? Is God going to keep his promise? And so they know they're getting old. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands. And Sarai has this idea, you know, I have a handmaiden and in their culture, you, a, 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 mass, a woman of the house could give a handmaiden to her husband and then the child would become that woman's child or in essence an heir. And so she says, I have this handmaiden. I'm going to give her to Abraham and that offspring will be legally our offspring. And so that happens and Hagar gets pregnant and it just goes downhill from there because Hagar now looks down on Sarai because Sarai wasn't able to... to to birth a child or, or bear a child. And Sarah gets angry because Hagar is starting to say things and blames Abram. And Abram says, do whatever you want. And, and Sarah is harsh and drives Hagar away. Remember this story? Just a hard story. And, and both are responsible for things. Sarah and Hagar both sinned. Both did things they shouldn't have done. And so Hagar left. And she, she heads towards her native Egypt across what is some desolate and difficult territory. And finally she comes to a spring and, and she just collapses. She lays down by the spring and the indication from the text is it seems like she's done. It seems like she has had enough. She's been through the ringer. She's been kicked out of where she was serving even though she was told to do this. And, and we find her and God finds her next to that spring in the difficult terrain. And in Genesis 16, it says the angel of the Lord came to her and the angel of the Lord ministered to her and promised that the, the child she bore would also be the seed of a nation and promised that God would be with her in desperate, difficult situations. And in verse 13, she called on the name of Yahweh who spoke to her and she said, you are a God of seeing, a God who knows a God who understands what we go through. Truly here I have seen Him who looks after me. And I, I thought of this story as we were coming to, to the situation in Acts because I think this is a little bit of where we find Paul as we come to Acts. Very similar feelings. A, a man that is discouraged. A man that is weary like Hagar. Things seem to be against him. And, and he's trying to continue on. If you remember, we left him last week in Athens. 
and he had this incredible discourse with some of the intellectuals at Athens and poured himself out, and we saw almost no results, at least in our human eyes. We didn't see a lot of converts like he saw other, other places. I mean, think about what Paul has been through. On this missionary journey alone, it started with him being estranged from one of his closest friends, had his plans stopped by God, he was arrested, brought to trial, beaten with rods, put in prison, had a mob formed against him to run him out of town, his host was attacked and beaten, his ministry shortened, he was falsely accused, he had to sneak to Athens, and he was left there without his team, had hardly a a response in Athens, and now we're going to find in today's text he comes to Corinth alone. That's a hard few months. And, and we think of Paul as this giant in the faith, and he was a giant in the faith, and, and God was using him in mighty ways. But in the text today, we're reminded that even those that are ministering faithfully get tired. And even those that are ministering faithfully get discouraged sometimes. And God, like with Hagar, is the God who sees, and the God who knows, and the God who looks after us. And as I was thinking through this text, I was... I was thinking through, that's where sometimes we are, right? Anyone here ever been discouraged in the last couple of years? Yeah. Every hand should go up because this happens. Paul described his state of mind, and, and so you know I'm not making this up, in his first letter to the Corinthians, to the place where, where we're going today, in 1 Corinthians 2.3, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And he says, When I came to you, I was weak, I was afraid and I was trembling. I was just scared to do anything. It was hard to do anything. So that is what Paul himself says about his state of mind. And so as we look at the text today, we do want to see what what God is doing through Paul, but I want to take this, what Paul says about his state of mind, and I also want to learn from how God encouraged him. Because I think those are some of the same ways God will encourage us. Some of the same ways when we feel weak like Paul, when we feel weak like Hagar, when things seem to be against us, when we, we, we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, and if we did, we'd wonder if it was a vehicle. How do we keep going? How do we not quit in a world where quitting is the easy way out? Wearsby tells a story about um, shoveling snow, and some kids came by with some snow shovels and, and said, $2, and we'll shovel your, your um, driveway. And he said, well, I'm already doing it. He said, yeah, we know, but most of our customers come from people that quit. So how do we not quit? How did God help Paul not quit when he was discouraged? When things were difficult? Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts, Acts chapter 18 We'll be looking at 1 through 22 today. It's the end of the second missionary journey. We're going to finish it off, but the text is going to cover somewhere between 18 and 24 months. And so um, we're going to see God encourage Paul in some amazing ways and Paul able to continue and finish well. The summary of the text I put in your notes is God encourages Paul in weakness through godly friendships, through support, fruit, and the assurance of God's faithfulness enabling him to finish his second missionary journey well. So Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 1. The first way we see God encouraging Paul is God gives Paul new refreshing friendships that encourage him in ministry. 
friends that become partners in ministry, some a new work, new people in his life that are going to encourage him. If you remember, when Paul was in Athens, um, Silas and Timothy weren't with him. They had stayed up in Macedonia, ministering there. There's some debate about maybe they came and joined him in Athens, then, then he sent them off to check on some churches. Or maybe they just stayed up there. We don't know for sure. But we do know that when Paul came to Corinth, he was alone. And for a man that always had a team ministering with him, for a man that was already discouraged by all he was going through, that's a challenging time to be alone. And that's a time that Satan can work in some really, really difficult ways. And so the first thing God does is give him new, refreshing friendships. God sees, God knows, and he takes care of us. Verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, whenever you see city names like that, you know we get maps. And so this is cool. Um, Corinth is just about 40 to 50 miles away from Athens. And so we, we had seen, if I can get this to work, there we go. We had seen up in Macedonia, Paul minister, Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea and things like that. He had been snuck down to Athens because things were getting heated up here. And he was in Athens a while. That was last week. And now he comes over to Corinth which is about 45, 50 miles away. Corinth is one of the leading cities of the area. We had talked about Athens being sort of on the decline. Corinth was not on the decline. It was growing, and it was the capital of the area. One of the reasons it was growing is Corinth was situated between two seas, and it was an isthmus. That's another one of those words. Say that five times fast. It was this, this narrow strip of land between these two seas that became a key trade route. And so boats would come to one side of, of the isthmus, that word, and they would either unpack them and cart the stuff over to the other side and put them on another boat, or they had whole groups of people that if your boat was small enough, they would put down rollers and they would take your boat over the land to the other side. And so no need to unpack, pretty cool, let's just take the whole boat. Um, some pictures I have of that. Um, oh wait, oh yeah, here's Corinth. And you have the two seaports on both sides. Corinth is probably a little more there. But Centria is one of the seaports. And then there's another one over there. But then I have a picture of modern-day Corinth. This is modern-day Corinth. Isn't that, isn't that helpful? So you get an idea. And, and now they have a canal. That canal was not there. So um, they did this by hand. Um, another picture of a canal because in the middle there it gets deep. And so you can see a little bit of what they've accomplished. But if you could open up this trade route, it would really help not having to go around, especially with the weather and the different ways that they lost. So this is Corinth. It was a a port city, a double port city, which means it had double the sin, and um, had about 650,000 people, which was very large for the time. That's pretty large for our time. And so this was a metropolitan um, city between the Adriatic and the Aegean Seas. It was also known for immorality. I wasn't joking when I said double the sin. Uh, as when we studied um, the books of, of Corinthians, if you remember, one of the phrases that was popular in Greek culture was, oh, they're just a Corinthian. Or she's a Corinthian woman. That was not a compliment. That meant she was a loose woman or he was um, immoral. And so it was, norm- it was known for immorality. To act Corinthian was to say, to be loose and act with immorality. This is not necessarily where you and I would choose to plant a church and start a thriving ministry. Yeah, let's go there. But this is where God 
took Paul. And so Paul leaves Athens. He went to Corinth. And then verse 2 and, and, and 2 through 4 gives us this wonderful picture of God's providential care for Paul in starting this ministry. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And so he's there and he meets Christians, Aquila and Priscilla. Sometimes as you look at other verses, um, Priscilla, you'll see Prisha is, is her name. And that's more a formal name. Priscilla is more of a common name or a, a, a friendly name. And so these two became Paul's deep friends. And, and it's amazing, even as you start to look at how this came to be, there was this edict that Claudius had given in Rome where he had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. So that's where Aquila and Priscilla lived was Rome. And Claudius, there was this disturbance over some guy named Christus, probably Christ, and between the Jews and the Christians. And, and they were all getting into it. And so Claudius says, I, I want none of this. You're gone. And he kicks all the Jews out. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they have had to leave their home. They end up in Corinth because it's the, the, the trade route from Rome. But God has them there at just the right time for his purposes. Priscilla and Aquila are some of my favorite bit characters in the Bible. This is a husband and wife team that knew how to minister as a husband and wife and knew how to minister as a partnership. Um, They were a joy and a help for Paul, even though they had to leave home, even though they they could have been the victims here, They chose to not be the victims, but to serve God and to help others. And so this was an important couple in the faith for Paul. We'll we'll talk more about them as, as we go. But these are believers that God directly has in Paul's path because Paul needs them. And so verse 3, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And we, we sometimes talk about Paul making tents. And, and the word here is leather worker. Probably tents, but probably more than just tents. But using leather to make different things that you would need for life. And so we have an amazing set of coincidences. Priscilla and Aquila are kicked out of Rome because of insurrection or rioting. They arrive at Corinth. They just happen to be the same trade as Paul. And they strike up this friendship and Paul ends up living with them. And they bring him in. He stayed with them. And, and worked for they were tent makers by trade. We, we, in just a few short verses, do you like Aquila and Priscilla yet? You see hospitable people. You see people willing to open their doors, willing to reach out and minister to others. And so Paul comes into town. He's going to minister in the synagogue in verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And just like he normally does, he starts in the synagogue. That's where you get the people that are seeking God. And he looks for the open doors first. But Priscilla and Aquila made this happen because they brought him in and gave him a place to stay and ministered to him. Tent making was was pretty common for rabbis. Um, We see that throughout Paul where he's talking about, I worked and tried not to to be a burden to you. And some of the, the famous teachers of the time would say, be sure you do this. You need to do something with your hands. But... What I love about it is the picture here is Paul all week 
he's working side by side, probably with Aquila. And now he's going home and they're talking around the dinner table and they're just living life together. And they're involved in each other's life. This is community. And they're talking and Paul's teaching. They're talking about the Lord. They're going to do this another time with Apollos and begin to sort of do the same thing that Paul did with them and help Apollos see the truth. That these, these are people we're going to see later in Acts that always had people in their home. They were refreshing people rather than draining people. How can I encourage you rather than what can I get from you? Or what will you do for me? And I think God had them there on purpose. As I think of village, I think of how many of you are refreshing people. And how many of you have worked hard to encourage my family and to encourage other families here. And it's just a joy to be here with you. A joy to come together as we work to refresh each other and meet each other's needs. And so out of this fellowship and friendship, Paul is able to continue the work, even though he comes discouraged and fearful and weary, as he says. And this is also a great example of of believers helping each other in a mutual way. Priscilla and Aquila are helping Paul. Paul is helping them with their trade. They're living together and they're encouraging each other. It is a, a wonderful picture of what my desire for friendships and community to be at Village, where we live life together, we're involved in each other's lives, we're encouraging, we're doing ministry together. By the way, Aquila and Priscilla are going to stay with Paul and be partners for the rest of his ministry. And, and just to give you sort of a, a history of, of where they're at, about 49 AD is when the edict came and they have to, had to leave Rome. So 49, not 1949, but 49. And then they go to Corinth in about 50-51. They meet Paul. They made tents. They ministered with Paul. And they're there a year and a half, two years. And we're going to find it at the end of the text today at about 52, they leave with Paul and go to Ephesus. And Paul leaves them there to be servants of the gospel, to be God's servants there. And so by 55-56, as we would expect them, they now have a home church in Ephesus. And they're inviting the whole church over. Let's have some food. Let's study the Bible together. And and they're sending greetings to other churches, sending greetings back to Corinth because they had made friends there. Then a a year later, 56, 57, they're back in Rome. The edict has has sort of passed away. And they're hosting the church at Rome. So wherever they go, they're like, come on over. Let's, Let's be family. And then finally, 67, 10 years later, they're back in Ephesus probably helping Timothy, young Timothy, as he pastors that church. This was an incredible ministry couple that God set in Paul's path at just the right time. A couple lessons we can learn from Priscilla and Aquila. Let's start with them. I I, I think the lesson from them is to use where you're at to serve God to the full. Use where you're at to serve God to the, the full. And if you're married here this morning, questions you should be asking yourself is what is my marriage accomplishing for God? What is my marriage accomplishing for God? How am I leveraging my marriage for ministry? Am I opening my home? Am I showing hospitality? Am I instructing others? Am I encouraging others? And there are things that you can do all kinds of ways outside of Sunday morning to encourage other people in this body. I mean, give, me, give me like three or four things that inc- would encourage you if someone did it. 
We'll just share ideas. You can talk. Inviting someone over for a meal. Yeah. Make it a good meal. But yeah. <laughs> Games. Yeah. Inviting someone to lunch. Yeah. How else can we encourage each other? Send a text that you're praying for them. Absolutely. Especially if they've asked you to pray for something on Sunday, remember it. Send them to how you're doing with this. One more. Ask how life is going. Pray with them. Yeah. These are ways we start to encourage each other. And Aquila and Priscilla did that together and challenged each other. I, I don't know if they had contests of who could minister to people better, but it sure seems like it. Because they did this so well. You know, maybe you're here and you're not married yet. And maybe you're looking to get married. I would, I would ask the question before you get married, how will we minister better as a couple than we will as singles? How will we help each other serve God as individuals? Or perhaps like Paul shares in 1 Corinthians, maybe you're called for a time to expanded ministry when you're not married. And so use that and, and embrace that and find ways to serve God where you're at. I think Priscilla and Aquila are great examples of that. For them, I think the question is, are we married to be better servants? Or is ministry just something we tack on to try to make a better marriage? And so many times we think, oh, I've got to have a good marriage. Marriage is supposed to make me happy. That's not the end goal of marriage. The end goal of marriage is to reflect Christ in the church and to serve Him. And actually when we do that, that's when I think we find the most joy in marriage. And and so God God knows what he's doing. Priscilla and Aquila are great examples. The second, though, is from Paul and, and God's encouragement to Paul. Develop encouraging close friendships that partner in ministry. This is still part of the application of point number one. Develop encouraging close friendships that partner with you in ministry. Village, you need people. You do. Some of you are extroverts and you need like 200 people. Some of you are introverts and, and greet time was tough. And one's enough. I don't care where you're at on the spectrum. You need somebody. You need people. You need people that will encourage you that you can minister with. And you need more than just a small number of people that are your echo chamber that are at your same stage of life. That, that does not produce growth. We need an intergenerational setting. We need older teaching younger. We need people. And God knew that. And so the first thing he does to refresh Paul is he gives him people. I think it's amazing. I think it shows God's faithfulness that we sung about this morning. I think it shows his care. I think it shows his love. And we miss it. I've missed that in this passage because I had never... I had never cross-referenced what Paul said about how he went to Corinth. I'm like, oh, oh. And so Scripture helps us understand Scripture. Second point, just in verse 5. And I had this along with the next point, and I'm like, ah, this, this needs its own point. God gives Paul a peek at the fruit of his ministry. So he encourages him with new friends, fellow believers, like-minded souls, but then he also encourages him that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And he gives them a peek at the fruitfulness of his past ministry. And we need that sometimes. Most of you are in some sort of ministry here. It is great to hear that God is using that. 
I, I've had so many times, some of the young men that I was an Awana leader to back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and um, that were a challenging sort of group. And I've had two or three of them come back and say, you know, I, I remember Awana. And I remember you, you struggling with us as we went to the bathroom out the window of the kids' building. Yeah, it happened. And I thought, God will never use this. I am wasting my time. Wouldn't you feel that way a little bit too? And I've had at least three of those young men come back to me and tell me about their life now and they're following God and thank me for not giving up on them. And in my heart, I'm like, I did sort of give up. I did, I didn't tell that, but I had no idea. That's the flesh in me. And I think, I think God here is showing Paul, no, your ministry matters. Listen to verse five. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And we can read this, and this looks like just an ordinary verse, and you're like, where did you get that, Pastor Ron? Let me share with you. What were Silas and Timothy doing? Why were they gone? They were checking up on the churches that Paul had ministered in. So he had sent them on a mission, and they were going out and checking up on Thessalonica, checking up on Berea, checking up on Philippi, some of the places that Paul had just been, that he had been beaten, that he had been imprisoned with, that he had left the church unfinished. And that can, that can leave you feeling like ministry didn't work. And, and Silas and Timothy come back. And as, again, as we compare some of the, the verses in 1 Corinthians, as we, we compare some of the verses in Philippians, we find that they come back with good news about those churches. And they come back and they see Paul and they're like, those churches are thriving. In fact, one of the things they came back with was a sizable gift of support from Philippi. And not only is it thriving, but they want to partner with you in ministry. And that is what this verse means when it says Paul was occupied with the word, or literally he was able to devote himself entirely to the task of of preaching. So, So Silas and Timothy come back. They have good news. They bring support from the churches. And now at this point, Paul, Paul doesn't have to make tents anymore because he has a living provided for him. And he's able to just preach the word. Wouldn't this be encouraging? This would, I, I, again, God is so good. He is so good. And so it, their physical presence encourages Paul. He's not alone anymore. These are his sons in the faith. I think part of the encouragement was seeing his sons in the faith minister well. Moms, dads that are here, how does it feel when your kids make good choices to follow Jesus? Yeah, it's hard to describe that, right? It is, I think that's a little bit of what Paul's feeling here too. That's encouraging. Timothy and Silas, they just rocked it. They did well. And they come back from these towns. Their physical presence encourages Paul, the ones he is discipling. And then they bring the physical support, the monetary support, like I said, Philippians 4.15 that we just talked about in in Sunday school, that's one of the verses that talks about that. It's a vote of confidence from the other churches. But also in 1 Thessalonians 3, we find that he brought back good reports from the churches, including Thessalonica. His labor wasn't in vain in the Lord. You know, a lesson out of this point is God gives Paul a peek at the fruit of his ministry. You never know what life you're going to touch when you minister faithfully. You never know. How many of you work in Awana or have worked in Awana? 
many hands. How many of you have worked in children's or youth ministry? Most of the hands here. And, and, and this applies to more than that, but those are just a, a couple of small ministries that your labor is not in vain and God is going to use that fruit in ways you may never know. But Paul gets a glimpse. He gets a little peek because he needed it. He needed it. Keep track of what God does and celebrate it, especially in the challenges. So things are going well. Um, Paul now can devote his time to the Word. And so we know what probably happens next. Opposition can't be far behind if we're in the, the same sequence that we've been. And so we get to verses 6 through 8. And, and this one is a different way of God encouraging him. But God's reversal uses opposition to expand the ministry, the team, and the spread of the gospel. So opposition rises and God just turns it around and reverses it to what Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. And in a way, and once we start to notice those times where God is turning discouraging things to good, that's encouraging because we start to focus on the right thing. So we, um, we can often see challenges and opposition as discouraging, as draining, right? But we could also see them as new ways for God to work. So verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, it doesn't even say an if, it's like, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so this is the same song, second verse again, it's, it's, but it's going to be different this time. God's going to do something different. He shakes out his garments at the opposition from the Jewish people that were so resistant to the gospel. And, and that was a warning. And, and yet he's closing door to ministry at this time in Corinth, not permanently to the Jews, but at this time in Corinth, he's closing his door to ministry to those Jews. But he's also distancing himself from the sin and rebellion that these people are, are showing. He's warning of God's judgment, which is what it means when he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's basically saying, I've shared the gospel with you. You know the good news of Jesus. You know that He's the Messiah. You know that He paid for our sins. He's the only way to receive forgiveness of sins. And you have rejected, and not just rejected, but turned it and, into evil and opposed it and reviled it. And so I'm done here. But He's not done. He's just saying, in this case, this is your warning. You've rejected Jesus. And to reject Jesus means to be judged. Same is true today. If we reject Jesus, if we reject the gospel, we know that God will hold us accountable for our sin. We know that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul, that, that's where Paul is. And he warns them, and he, and he shuts the door of the synagogue. He shuts the door there. But then he looks for open doors. And I love how God turns this around. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, or Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Now, that's probably two of his Roman names. Everyone had three Roman names. These were more the formal names. But this is probably Gaius that we see in, in 1 Corinthians. And that would be his third Roman name. But he goes to this person's house, a worshiper of God. Oh, by the way, okay, I added that part in verse 7. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
And so God shuts the door to the Jews that are reviling him and then brings him to Titus Justus, who accepts Christ and is following Christ, lives next door to the synagogue, and he's like, I know. Let's meet here. In fact, preach the gospel here. Maybe preach it loud enough so they hear it next door. I, I don't know. That, that's, that's me guessing. But this allows ministry to continue to the people that were open to God and, and right next to where people were coming to worship. This is brilliant. This is almost like God planned this. Almost. Uh, God, God knows what he's doing. And he turns the opposition around to expand ministry. But he's also expanding the team. And, and throughout this, I see such, such words of community because now Titus Justice is part of the team. He's opening his house. So now we have Aquila and Priscilla and we have Silas and Timothy are back. We have others accepting him. Titus Justice is a worshiper of God next door to the synagogue and it gets better in verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, so the Jew that's in charge of the synagogue and making sure people stick with Judaism, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Now, this is where we should clap. Clap for God. Because this is amazing that what the, the opposition tries to stop it and they open doors next door and people are coming to Christ all over the place, including the ruler of the synagogue. Now, probably that meant losing his job. <laughs> he couldn't still do that. And in fact, in the verses to come, we're going to find an, a new ruler of the synagogue who also became a Christian. <laughs> God is encouraging Paul by showing his hand, by showing his ability to turn even the most difficult situations for his glory. And so for us, if we're to apply this, this, this point and see God working in this way, when ministry challenges come, look for ways to transition ministry to new opportunities. Look for ways to develop more leaders or ministry relationships. If they're still in the synagogue... Who knows if Titius Justice opens his, his house? Who knows if he becomes sort of a house church in the area? Who knows if Crispus comes to know the Lord? We don't know, but we know God used those things and now the team is bigger. And these are some pretty heavy hitters. And so God is doing a work. Many people are coming to him. And so there are times that opposition to ministry is going to come here. Whatever ministry you're in, and maybe it's coming from your personal life. Maybe it's coming from just um, moving. Maybe, maybe there's all kinds of things can challenge ministry. Whenever those things come, rather than, than getting upset and rather than letting that stop us, here's, here's what we do. And, and this is my optimist side, so let me just let it rub off on you. Okay, how's God going to use this? How's he going to use this? How's he going to turn this around? Because he will. We know that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So we know the end. It's just a matter of figuring out how God's going to do it. And that's exciting to see. And in this case, God did a great work. There's an ancient story. Leonides, the, the noble hero of the Spartans, he defended Greece from the Persians. You can remember some of the movies about that. He was in a battle against thousands of invaders. One of them, his men said to him, General... When the Persians shoot their arrows, arrows, there are so many of them that they darken the sky. Leonidas replied, then we will fight in the shade. 
not necessarily a spiritual story, but it's an example of someone that took a difficult situation and turned it for good. We need to do that in ministry. We're going to have difficulty. We're going to have challenges. Jesus told us that. In this world, you will be persecuted. Okay. Then God's going to use those to open doors. So then we we come, and, and so ministry continues. Probably opening a church next door to the synagogue and people going over there, that probably might lead to some more persecution. And so we get to verse 9, 9 through 17, and point number 4 is the Lord assures Paul of his faithful protection, enabling him to develop deeper ministry. The Lord assures Paul of his faithful protection, enabling him to develop deeper ministry. We've seen that, that God encouraged him with community, with friendships, with God, God-refreshing friendships. We see that God encouraged him with fruit by just giving him a, a peek at what he's doing. God encouraged him by taking a difficult situation and using it for the kingdom. And now here, the Lord just assures Paul. He reassures him of his faithful protection. Starting at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And again, from what God said to Paul, we see where Paul's head is at. We see the same thing that that we mentioned in 1 Corinthians 2. And God is coming alongside and saying, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful of of talking. Don't give up. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Don't let the, the trouble stop you. And he gives them a beautiful promise. For I am with you. You will not be harmed. No one will attack you to harm you. He doesn't say there won't be opposition. In fact, we're going to see that people are still saying things But God's protection is that he won't be harmed at Corinth, that he can continue ministry and continue it well. What a great great encouragement. And then he says, For I have many in this city who are my people. I I love that God says this. We we joke around, oh, these are my people. God started that phrase. He says, I have many in this city that are my people. There's some debate about this phrase. Um, some think it means that there's many that are going to come to Christ. And, and so um, you can look at um, all kinds of election stuff here and everything. And, and not negating that doctrine, I just don't think this verse is what it's talking about. I think he's saying there's a good community of believers here that you don't even realize is here. I think this is reminiscent of Elijah who said, Woe is me, I'm the only one that is following God. And God says, Oh, no, actually there's a bunch. And I think that's what he's doing here. Because there is something incredibly encouraging about knowing we're not alone in the battle. About knowing we have community. It's why we share prayer requests and we're encouraged. It's why when we come together and do things like lunch and do things like say I'm praying for you and write notes of encouragement, those all actually help because we're designed to be in community like we talked about in point one. And God's reminding him, There's a lot of my people here. And you're one of them. You have family. So then verse 12, this is tested immediately. And you have to see 12 through 17 with 9 through 11 because 12 through 17 is the the fruition of the promise. Well, sorry, I skipped 11. And he stayed a year and six months. So Paul's there 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. Summary statement. 
And then we get to this, this situation where this is tested. Verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And so Paul might be thinking, God, you promised. You said I'd be protected. I stepped out even though I was afraid, even though I was beaten and battered and bruised. I stepped out. And here I am being drugged against the, 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 uh, before the authorities again. And they were saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And th- this could have been that he w- they were saying he was contrary to emperor worship or some of the things there. Some of the finer points was that Judaism was a protected religion. And as long as Christianity by, by Rome was seen as part of Judaism or an offshoot from Judaism, they were protected. And it looks like the Jews are coming alongside and saying, Nope, not one of us. We argue about it. They have this guy called Jesus. And and so it looks like they're trying to remove Roman protection here. So this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, now see if this is encouraging. Paul's about to, to, again, take 25, defend himself. He's about to open his mouth. Before he could speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Paul doesn't even have to defend himself. God defends him. God keeps his word. God is faithful. 17 is an interesting verse. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let me give you a couple of ideas of what this verse could mean. Um, Some think Sosthenes was already a believer. And so the Jews were like, well, for whatever reason, we can't take it out on Paul because God's protecting him is the reason we know. Let's take it out on Sosthenes. Um, others think that Sosthenes, as the, the ruler of the, um, the synagogue, he was to blame for allowing Paul to continue. And there's another train of thought, and this is probably more likely, that it's the Greeks that are attacking them because the, the proconsul was like, ah, do what you want. And there's probably some anti-Semitism here, probably some, some like, they've caused enough trouble. We're just going to deal with this here. They, they made a, a mockery of our court, and so they beat the guy. Could be any of those. But whatever happens, we know that Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And what this event served to do was put the people of Corinth on notice that the Romans were not going to stop the spread of Christianity. And the church was allowed pretty much unhindered growth in the next 18 months. Because of Paul's doing, he never even got to speak. God is encouraging Paul by assuring him that things are that he is faithful and then by protecting him and enabling ministry. I think some of us today need to know that God is assuring us of his protection. He's assuring us of his presence. He's assuring us that he will be with us in ministry. And just as he did a miracle with Paul, we serve the same God who is not leaving us alone when we are discouraged. Just a a side note, just sort of fun. Again, 
Acts, I think you have to read with the rest of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So he's writing to this church. He's gone on his way, and he's writing to this church. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. And it looks like he became a believer. And it looks like he became a ministry partner and helped write the letter to Corinth. By the way, like I said, this was the next ruler of the synagogue after Crispus, and he converts too. I love it. I love it. And so the, Gallio's refusal to support the opposition opened the door for long-term ministry for Paul. This was vital to get the church up and running in such a crucial area. And this was in yet another way that God was tangibly encouraging Paul to keep going. And we get to the last section, 18 through 22. This is sort of summarizing everything. Paul was able to finish his time in Corinth well and was given a glimpse of future effectiveness and ministry opportunity. So God directs him to go home at some point. 18 months later, it's time, but, but he, he completed the task God had for him there because of God's encouragement through fellow believers, through circumstances, through protection, through fruit. But God is keeping His people going. Verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. So the whole um, Gallio incident wasn't the end of the 18 months, but pretty early on, I think. Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the, the brothers and set sail for Syria, which is where Antioch was, his home, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So they had, they had formed this bond. They're ministering together. And they're like, hey, you want us to go with you and help you? And so they go as far as, as Ephesus, as we'll see in a moment. At Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And this probably was a vow of thanksgiving for God's protection. So probably in Corinth, Paul had made a, a temporary Nazarite vow. And you do that to honor the Lord. And he had dedicated to honoring the Lord in thanksgiving for what God was doing in Corinth. I think this is a refreshed Paul, a Paul that is now giving praise to God and thanks to God for what he had done. And he gets to Centria, he cut his hair, it's the end of the oath. Then he's going to take that to Jerusalem and do an offering, and we're going to see that here. But what I love is we see Paul restored and refreshed and able to say, thank you, God, for doing that. Then they come to Ephesus, they cross the, the sea to Ephesus, and, um, and Paul left them there. And he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And they asked him to stay for a longer period. He declined. And so this is where we get a glimpse of future ministry because Paul's going to go there on his next missionary journey. He, he drops off Priscilla and Aquila. While he's there, he teaches in the synagogue and people start responding. And people start coming to know the Lord. And, and Paul just sees a glimpse of what the future is going to be. And sometimes God does that with renewed vision for us. Renewed vision of what he's doing. And I think that's how God is encouraging Paul here to keep going. But Paul, Paul can't do that. He's probably trying to get to one of the festivals in Jerusalem and um, then back home. And so it says, And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return if God wills. We know he did. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea... He went up and greeted the church. And that probably refers to going up into the mountains to greet the church at Jerusalem, the church. And he greets the church and probably fulfills the sacrifice of his vow. And then he went down to Antioch. 
And that's the end of the second missionary journey. Somewhere around three years, two and a half, three years, he's been on the road. What was incredibly discouraging at times, God completely turned around and refreshed him and encouraged him and equipped him to stay true to the the mission. And so we, we, we get this picture of just how God was a God that sees. How He was a God that knows, just as He was with Hagar, He was with Paul, and He is to date with us. And so I get to the end of the story, and I, I reread what, what He wrote at the beginning to Corinth. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And God changed it by coming and encouraging him. That might have been the end, but God. But God. I want to end by reading a portion of 2 Timothy 4 as a benediction. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. This is Paul writing to his protege, Timothy. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. May we be able to say those same words, that we have stayed true to God's mission and we have seen him strengthen and encourage us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your care and your love and your faithfulness. Lord, this isn't just another story about the spread of the church to a synagogue and outside the synagogue, although that is incredible and that is important. But it's a story that reminds us that you are individually caring for each of us as we minister, for our needs and bringing us what we need, Lord God, and we find our strength and encouragement in you. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for Paul's vulnerability to write these things so we can know it's not just us. Lord, I pray for every person here that you would come alongside if there's discouragement right now, that you would come alongside and equip for ministry, equip to continue to encourage others to be used by you. And Lord, may we be a weak and vulnerable church that is seeking you for strength and then watching you do amazing things to your glory. Thank you, God, in your name.